Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, our very special guest is three-time Emmy-nominated actor Robert Walden, who, when he wasn't working steadily in award-winning series like Lou Grant, was making important feature film appearances in many timeless classics, including The Hospital and All the President's Men. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Steve. It's nice to see you in person. And uh, I got to get start listening to your show. I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm isolated on an island here in Texas. I'm in Austin. Well, we're we're Blue uh, Island <laughs> in the <laughs> middle of the tomato soup, the Red Sea. Well, our podcast is designed to fill in some gaps and ha offer you some fun with some interesting people. And you, of course, are one of them. I'm delighted that you're here. I want to go back to the early days in Manhattan. Did you grow up uh, going to the movies a lot? I lived in the movies. I mean, when my parents couldn't find me. They had a list on the wall of all the movie theaters in the neighborhood, and they would call them and ask if there was a young guy sitting in the children's section by himself. Of course, I outfoxed them because uh, I would go over to people in, in you know, the grown-up section and say, can I sit here? And they would say, sure. So sometimes they couldn't find me. But yes, I lived in the movies. The movies were in Lower East Side of Manhattan. When I grew up, I mean, when I grew up, I they were delivering laundry, uh, uh, coal, ice, bread by horse-driven wagons right down Clinton Street. Honest to God, horse-driven wagons, and two blocks from where we lived was the stables, <laughs> where the horses were on, on Second Street. So, yeah, uh, it was a, a deli, a movie theater, and a synagogue every three blocks. That's how I grew up. You know, um, it's funny you, you should mention the, um, I mean, <laughs> this image of you in the, the balcony, It's I, I had this flashing on the fact that I remember that they had a section in the theater I went to in West L.A., a smoking section. Where oh, yeah. People smoked in the balcony, just like people smoked on the air in airplanes. I never quite understood smoking on airplanes where they had a non-smoking section because there's no way the non-smoking section was smoke-free. <laughs> well, I think I'm a little older than you, and they didn't even have a smoking section. You smoked anywhere. Oh, really? You, well, you, you, are, you, are a little, you are a little <laughs> older than me. Um, I was born in 51, so you were already going to the movies regularly in 51, do you remember yeah. one of the first movies you ever remember as a kid? God, the theater across the street from, I lived at 20 Clinton Street between Delancey and Houston. Okay. So the theater across the street was called the Palestine. That's what it was called. And uh, when I, I, I recall, I don't remember my first film, but I think I, I, I so many films are a blur, but they were my favorites and they were the dead end kids, the, you know, Leo Gorsi and Hunt Saul and, sure. uh, and, and, and all of them. And, uh, 
It's funny you should mention them because my guest on my podcast last week was Craig Edwards, who is an expert on the Bowery Boys. So my show next week is all about the Bowery Boys and and the Dead End Kids. Man, uh, uh, I... I, I, w- I was friendly with Gabe Dell when I was in the actor's studio. Gabe Dell was in the original stage place, you know, uh, 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 I think it was a street scene or something. It was dead, or maybe it was Dead End. On dead Broadway. End with Humphrey Bogart, yeah. Well, that was the movie, but there, there was a, a play on right. Broadway right. first. And and then they made the movie. And uh, so Gabe Dell was just... I asked him to help me on a scene I was doing at the actor's studio because I, I couldn't find a way to get laughs getting in the door, you know? So I, I, I went and saw love for the third time and he had replaced somebody in love. And uh, uh, so, yeah, he was great. A great guy, just a great guy. Wonderful actor, by the way, uh, underrated actor. Very good. So were you always interested in being an actor? Was that always on your mainframe or did you have other interests? Well, I was interested in, I guess, getting my parents to really love me, (laughs) like (laughs) most actors or many. And uh, my father loved the theater. He would take, my father was born in Poland and came here when he was about six years old. And uh, went through uh, textile world, push carts, selling fabric, and then his own his own store at fifteen, and he wound up making uh, 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 custom made bedspreads and draperies, and to the point where he could make them, it, it, he he just made them so well, and they made it look like they were all appliqued spreads. Here, he had a whole system that he patented. And he had his thing, his stuff in several White House administrations. He was so good. So he got successful, even though we lived on the Lower East Side. I'm, you asked me that question about the theater. He loved the theater. And so did my mother. And he, he would pick his mother up in Brooklyn and bring, bring her back to the Lower East Side because 2nd Avenue was the Yiddish theater. And she understood Yiddish. She didn't speak, his mother didn't speak that much English. And uh, so I'm a first generation American. So anything you say or ask is reflected through my having met relatives as a child who survived the Holocaust. That is a prism that is more triggered now than ever before. Than of course. Of course. Was, your, was your father a Holocaust survivor? No, no. But he escaped the pogroms. He told did. me all about them. Got and I had, I had a relative who escaped from a camp. Yeah, and showed me the bullet holes in the back of his, in his back. Oh. Uh, you know, um, when they, they, you know, they got him, but they didn't kill him. He was a tough guy. Uh, so, yeah, I had a different perspective than, 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 than most people because there were that many relatives and found after the war. And it was a big deal when you found a relative in 1949 or 50. Sure. Which they did, and you know. Anyway, so they loved the theater, and so my mother loved film, loved the movies, and sometimes as a treat, she would take me even on a school night. So she would say, "You want to go to a movie?" And I went, "Yeah." And so I would go to the movie at night. It was a big, big 
treat for me. And I, I just loved, loved, the, loved the movies. They were uh, not just an escape. They made me feel less alone. And they also educated me because uh, the movie Across the Street, sometimes it would show Rafifi, would show foreign films, which I thought were sexy because they were so more sophisticated. And I was a little kid. And, you know, movies were very, very daring in those days. I mean, the outfits that women, we women wore, they were in their underwear, for God's sake. If you look at some of those films, the 30s movies and early 40s, my God, I mean, they were risque. So, yeah, I, I like the film. <laughs> I always date my puberty from seeing my first James Bond movie. That's, yes, you're younger than I yes, am. Gold, yeah, yeah. Gold yeah, that was a se sexy film, yeah. Yeah, Goldfinger, 1964. I had just read the book for the f first time. My father would go on business trips. He'd bring home Westerns. And I just didn't want to read Westerns because there were Westerns on TV every 20 minutes. But one day he brought home a book with a naked woman on the color cover with gold paint all over. And he said, you might find this interesting. So he gave me Goldfinger. Now I was, let's see, in 64, I was uh, uh, 11. And... Uh, uh or 12 and um i didn't know know from nothing <laughs> i graduated so, college in 64 and got into the actor's <laughs> studio in 64 oh, so the same good, week it's a good it year a for week. you i've you I've, know i didn't answer your question steve when you asked about my acting and when when i did i always wanted to be an actor uh my parents sent me to a camp in the catskills called camp roosevelt and I went there for 10 years in a row. I started there, I think I was four and, four and a half years old. And they asked if any of the midges, I was a midgie, asked if any of the midges sang. So I raised my hand and they said, would you want to be in the senior play at camp? And I went, sure. And anyway, I wound up acting in everything in camp all through those years. Um, but... Also, when my parents took me to the uh, the Catskills in the summer, they would like rent a place at the Hotel Irvington in South Fallsburg. Um, they had a band at night, you know. They they put on shows at night in the. Oh, casino. this is all the whole Borscht Belt. Yes, and I, I, my dad always took me uptown to see the movies when they opened, on the, like the Paramount. There would be five stage shows and three showings of the film or four showings of the film every day. So I got to see all these live stage shows. I don't know how many times I saw Tony Bennett live and all the big bands coming, rising up. But they always had a comic. And the comic was often doing impersonations. And I I was a smart kid. I was precocious. And and. Kind of like Billy Crystal. I just wound up doing all their shtick at five years old. I had rubber cigars. I was doing, Cag, you know, Eddie Robinson and Cagney and Jimmy's. And so the guy from the band saw me doing this. My father bragged that I could do it. And he got me up on stage late at night in front of all those people. And they were rolling in the aisles. They didn't believe I was like five five and a half years old and can do all this. And so he started writing material for me and had me for that weekend coming up on stage with him and doing bits like 
so who are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm going to do that. He told me to say I was going to do Jimmy Stewart. And then I would wind up doing uh, Peter Lauren for everything. You know, I want to take you and squeeze you and suck your. I would do all that stick. And so this guy, Murray Blank was his name. They called him Blimpy Blank because he was 5'2 and about 250 pounds, played a trumpet. Anyway, he wound up, his band was on the Maury Amsterdam show. I don't know. You remember Maury Amsterdam from... Of uh, from the Dick Van Dyke show, of course. Yeah. Maury Amsterdam was a comic, a stand-up, and he was on TV a lot, and he had his own show at one point on Channel 5. Anyway, I go back. I was I was entertaining and tumbling and singing and doing impersonations as a kid, much like Billy Crystal's act when he did it on Broadway and talked about how he grew up. It was, I was not, not dissimilar in terms of what I love doing. So how, how yeah, could you, I was how could you, at. how could you not have been an actor after that story? I mean, the, you know, um, it's like I it was in the cards. Doing it, I never thought of doing it for a living. I didn't think I was, you know, I didn't look like any of these handsome guys who were movie stars, you know, and I wasn't a, I was, you know, five foot six at that time. I was grew to five, eight, but, uh, I, I just didn't think anyone would put this mug on, on film or, or, you know, didn't, I didn't think it was a, something I could support myself doing. I just loved doing it until city college of New York. I, uh, I got the part of Sakini in Tea house of the August moon. And um, I, I wasn't quite sure how to do it. I saw, I went and saw the movie that, Brando doing and I saw the physicality he had how how he was trying to understand and translate because Sakini was the translator in Okinawa uh, anyway whatever and I, I think what helped me get it is <laughs> I, uh, I I knew the comedy record uh, uh, that Buddy Hackett did called The Chinese Waiter. Now he would probably get arrested for doing it because it would be called <laughs> racist. But it was, uh, how many people you have? Uh, you know, it was like, I, I knew the whole thing. Oh, hello, how you do? Uh, what you want? Uh, how many, how, what you want? One time soup? Why you raise a hand? I didn't name a soup yet. You know? Oh, you have to go bathroom? Go ahead. It was like <laughs> that bad. But I knew the whole record by heart. It was a, a flip side to the noisy eater. Anyway, a little 45 record. But I remembered it from learning it as a kid. And I, at least I was able to do some kind of act, fake an accent. And I wound up really getting good in the rehearsals and everything. And uh, there were 1,100 seats in the in, in the theater at the, the Bernard Baruch School of Business Administration, which was downtown city, downtown CCNY. Our campus was 23rd Street and Lexington Avenue. That was it. Now, it's a very highly regarded business school now, and they have four-block campus now, but in that area. Anyway, I w they wound up giving me a, a, a solo bow which was not usual because the head of the speech department, the program thought I was great. And I got a standing ovation from all these people and I got scared. 
And uh, I just remember the feeling was was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's when I thought, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I can do this. Maybe, maybe I could actually do this for uh, for real. And it went on from there. I did some musicals and won Best Actor Award uh, in Guys and Dolls. And uh, what part uh, did you play in Guys and Dolls? You wouldn't believe what part I played. You'd never guess. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to guess and say uh, Sky Masterson. No way. I never saw myself as a leading man. I was a character guy. A right, character. right. Uh, and I wanted to sing Sit Down, You Rock, and The Boat was one of my favorite songs. I right. did as a kid. I just thought it was the greatest song, and it is the best 11 o'clock song of all time. And I wanted to sing the song, and they uh, they wanted me to do, uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, Nathan Detroit. That's okay. what the part they wanted me to do. And I said, I said, okay, I'll do it if I can sing Sit Down You Rock in the Boat. And they said, but you that's nicely, nicely Johnson sings that song. Not every yeah, but but why can't what what if nicely when they ask for people to testify at the mission? Because it's a bet. He has to deliver sinners because he loses the bet. Because Guy Masterson takes uh, the the lady to to Havana for coffee, he's lost the bet, and he has to deliver sinners now. So, what if uh, what if nobody offers to sing? Then Nathan's stuck. He has to sing it. He he has to testify. And they said it's a Pulitzer Prize winning musical. You can't rewrite it and re. <laughs> and then I said, "Well, I want to sing that song. Can I do nicely, nicely?" And nicely, nicely, of course, you figure is a round, heavy set guy who's always eating. I, I think of Stubby K. Stubby K. Wow. Yeah, that was his role. He you know, nailed it. I got a, I got a horse right here. His name is Paul Revere. And there's a guy who says, if the weather's clear, can do. Can <laughs> do. Anyway, there's a bunch of songs I get to sing, but that song is the showstopper. And you have to excuse me. My dog insists on being part of this. It's just absolutely. We'll stand by. Come on, Zelly. You're on camera. Come on. You see her hop up there? <laughs> nice job. Sweet. By I've the way, my dog sleeping behind me. Uh, Kimmy is sound <laughs> asleep on a chair. That's Zelda the Magnificent. Pampoo. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I wound up singing it and that. Uh, and one night, I don't know what it was that happened, but I I was looking up at the spotlight. I had a spot on me when I was singing, and and it was the line. And as and as I sank, I hollered, "Someone save me!" And I was looking at the spotlight, and the spotlight went into like a cross. I mean, the the light in my eyes it just took the shape of a cross. And I got terrified because I was Jewish. I still am. <laughs> but I, I, I had what is called a moment in the theater. It was like electrifying to me. I got scared. When I saw that happen, it was like an out-of-body experience. I kept on, you know, I continued with the song, but it's recitative then. All the music stops. 
And, and you say, that's the moment I woke up, thank the Lord. And then the chorus comes, thank the Lord, thank the Lord. And the people, but that moment, anyway, I got best actor doing that supporting part for that song. And uh, it was like a unanimous thing. And, um, and somebody saw me do it and then offered me summer stock at the Cecilwood Theater in Fishkill, New York. Little theater that the actor studio people all kind of went to it did roles and stretched themselves in the summer year before there peter fonda was there the year before me and before that dustin hoffman was there uh, with uh uh and uh barbara streisand did a summer there did three shows there it was a little theater it was like 99 seats or something and it was uh you know rip van winkle country anyway that's my whole life. You got it in a, you got it in a I, nutshell. It, it's wonderful and, it, and it's in great stories. So as you know, I am a huge fan of the hospital. I mean, I watch it, I watch it as often as I can. I have the whole audio of the movie, the whole audio. I play it when I'm shaving. You know, it's like the 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 Shaevsky dialogue, you can bounce quarters off it. It's so sharp, and it's the most perfectly cast movie. And the very fact that you were a part of that and, and can talk a little bit about it is so, so much fun for me. Um, first of all, tell us, what do you remember? This is very early in your career. You had just started to do films and you get the hospital. How do you get it? Um, it's, again, it's another kind of a dramatic story. Um, I was in San Francisco at the time because there was I could, nothing was happening in New York and they took uh, I. They brought me to San Francisco to do a, a, a two-character play called "The Last Sweet Days of Isaac." Uh, it was a kind of a soft rock musical, um, and anyway, so I was doing it at, at their second theater around the corner from the Geary Theater, and Patty Chayefsky was there because they were doing "The Latent Heterosexual," a play of his that no one's ever seen. It bombed on Broadway. And he 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 did some rewriting on it, and they were going to do they were in rehearsal for a production of it, and I and he came to his opening night to see me in this play, not to see me, but you know just to see what this was around the corner. He had nothing to do at night, no rehearsal, <laughs> and anyway, he came back. Uh, the the second night, the next night, um. He came backstage. They said, somebody's here to see you. It's in between acts, by the way. I was changing. It was in between acts one and two. And I said, who is it? He says, some guy named Patty Chayefsky. And I went, what? And he, Patty came in the dressing room. He says, what are you doing after the show? I said, I, getting some coffee or something <laughs> or getting some food. He said, let me come have coffee and tea. I want to take you. I want to talk to you. So he left, and I thought, is he gay? Is he trying to pick me up? <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. Anyway, uh, I met with him, and he told me about this film that he is casting right now uh, called The Hospital. And he, he wasn't sure he was going to get any of the three guys he wanted, which was Rod Steiger, Walter Matthau, or George C. Scott. Those who are the three people he wanted, any of them thought they 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 could do it. 
but he said, I really need a bunch of good actors who can play comedy. He said, it's a dark comedy. And you, you'd be great for a bunch of roles in this. And I want you to, if you're in New York in April, I want you to, you know, get in touch with me because I want them to see you. That was, he, he was, I, this was December. Well, I wasn't in New York in April. I, I had just opened <laughs> replacing somebody and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Oh. And, and, uh, uh, believe it or not, the part I did was Billy Bibbit in that at the, it was at, uh, uh Coppola's theater. Copa had a little theater there in San uh, Francisco. Yeah. And it was the longest running non-musical in the history of San Francisco around five years. It's a wonderful production. Max Gale played the Indian in it. Uh, who played, anyway, McMur who played McMurphy? A guy named Paul Jenkins. Who was very good. Jane Jenkins, the casting director, was his wife. Oh, okay. Um, so anyway, um, uh, I had just opened in it. And, you know, I was, and I was like exhausted, you know, because <laughs> opening night and so and so. I get a call about six in the morning, 6.30, really early. Well, it was three hours difference from New York for my agent. She wants me to fly in and read for a film called The Hospital, Patty Chayefsky and so-and-so. They said, they've been looking for you. Uh, Patty said he found somebody, he saw this kid, this young guy and named Isaac. So we were looking for actors named Isaac. It was the last sweet days of Isaac. He saw me in and he couldn't remember my name. Thought it was Isaac. Anyway, I had him, they said they'd fly me in uh, but if I got the film, I have to fly myself back. <laughs> and they didn't, I'm telling you, and they didn't know if they would be able to keep me in the play because I had just opened and now I was going to leave for two weeks if I got the role. Anyway, it all worked out. Good Friday and uh, Good Friday and, and Yum Kipper came on the same day and that's when I got the role and so did and, you go back to the play or did you stay in New York? They let me come back in the play. Yeah, they did. They did Cause they weren't going to start shooting right away anyway. Right. Oh no, they were ready. Cause what happened is the original director, Patty got rid of him and he was oh, a very good director. Do you know, uh, do you remember the name? Um, I, I, he was the guy who directed downhill racer and, and, and the candidate. So oh, he yeah. had a feel he had a feel for documentary kind of feeling, which is what Patty wanted. Right. Um, but in the course of reading actors and casting it, Patty, the sensibilities were not, not working. And I was told by Marion Dougherty at one point, Patty said, did you read my script? <laughs> uh, and so he got, he dumped him. And brought in Arthur Hiller, who had directed the Americanization of Emily. Right. And they recast. And that's how I got this shot and got the role. And Patty gave me like this great piece of direction when I read. Because I was reading 
like the intensity of a doctor. Some guy is dying. You know, it's a five minute scene. You know, the scene about a guy who comes in the hospital in perfectly good health, no visible distress. And we do a mandatory workup on him. You know, blood culture, stool sample, LE prep, CKG, all negative. I just, I just love the way protein in his urine. <laughs> I love, I love and, the way. It, I, I love, I've listened to that scene a thousand times and I just, uh, I love the way you say, and he's, now he's producing good water. <laughs> just love the way yeah. you said that. He's putting out good water now. Yeah. He's putting out <laughs> good water now. <laughs> anyway, um, Patty gave me this piece of direction because when I read it, he said, you know, he said, he said, there's all these doctor shows and so and so. He said, the doctor show that I think is closest to how it really is, is Ben Casey. He said, because he's very, he's a doctor. He's not a, a movie star. He's not a TV star. He's a doctor. And uh, he's got a lot on his mind. <laughs> and he's very flat. He said, would you read this again? He said, it's two mechanics looking at a card that somebody brought in, trying to figure out how to, how to make it run properly. That's what he gave me. And when he gave me it, I laughed. Because I said, that's great. So I read it that way. And that got me the role. And I was so nervous because I knew I wasn't good enough in science at Stuyvesant High School, which is a science math high school in New York, very special. So I knew I wasn't good enough to be the senior resident in a hospital to answer to George C. Scott, for God's sake. Uh, I was so... I felt so inadequate intellectually to uh, to play the senior resident. So as soon as they, I did the costume fitting, I went right to Roosevelt Hospital, stopped the first doctor who came out that I saw, exited the hospital, I told him I wanted to observe, could he help me? And when I told him that George C. Scott was in the movie and it was Patty Chayefsky, he talked to me for about 40 minutes outside the hospital. And then he said, come inside. He took his coat off and gave it to me, his white jacket. A uh, wonderful guy. And brought me up to the administrator, the woman who was sitting behind the desk, and explained what was going on. And he wanted to see if I could observe. He was leaving. He said he'd been up for 48 hours. So he was he he had to go home. He had, he had to lay down. But he called a... Uh, a young doctor, a surgeon, in sur a second year resident in surgery uh, to come down and he met me and I stayed with him until I started shooting on Monday. I, I slept when he slept, if he slept, went home, ate when he ate, if he ate. And, uh, and I just spent, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday until I had to go to the set on Monday with doctors. And I picked up so much information. Tell me uh, your first impressions of George C. Scott. Well, <laughs> I, I, I had the, I, I was in the Broadway show league. I, I, and so I, I got two doubles off George C. Scott once. And he said, nobody ever got two doubles off me. I was just <laughs> such a huge fan of his. I was so, uh, I was just in awe of his acting. I just thought he was brilliant. 
and I love the fact that he never showed up for the Oscar nominations that he won for Best Supporting Actor. Um, but he was incredible in Hustler. You know, people forget how great he was in The Hustler. And uh, everything he did was just superb. Uh, so I was nervous about meeting him for for a couple of reasons. One, I was told to be nervous by Trish Vanderveer, who was his second wife. Uh, I mean, and his last wife. He had fallen in love with her doing a movie before. And he, we dated briefly. Oh, you and Trish? Yeah. Oh, yeah, but way before, before I went out to LA, just, you know, we really liked each other. And so she told me he cannot find out you dated me or you're off the film. <laughs> so she said, <laughs> you, you know, you, and I didn't have a place to stay really. You know, that I didn't have a lot of dough. <laughs> I mean, I, they flew me in, but I got to find a place to stay. And so somebody let me stay in a, a, an apartment that they just had a an empty bed in. And Trish was in an apartment, uh, a friend of hers, an actor friend in the studio. Elaine uh, Akins was her name. Really nice apartment on Central Park West. She said, you can stay in, uh, uh, you know, the couch or whatever in, the, in one of the bedrooms or whatever. So, you know, just as I stayed there. And then the phone rang and she thought it was George coming up. So I had a, I, gr I got dressed. I ran down like, I don't know how many stories, 12 stories down the stairwell holding my shoes. I didn't want him. I didn't want to be in that apartment if it was George coming up. Uh, so everything about my life was kind of theatrical and dramatic is what I can tell you. But when I met George the first time, and I was nervous, I was nervous as hell. Uh, I think most people were, because he was, he had just done Patton, and which is a huge success, and everyone thought he was going to get the Oscar for it. And uh, uh, I think he wound up getting the Oscar. Yes, they came while we were shooting. The day came that, that he had gotten uh, the nomination. They, somebody had come up and said, and he said, ah, I'm not going he said ah, he, didn't believe, he didn't believe actors should compete with each other he thought we were all a family you know that how do you anyway so uh i'm trying to think what the point is this is this you just have to know that the book the my re-memoir that i'm working on is called i digress <laughs> so <laughs> you you know why now? Well, this is all music to my ears, Robert, because I, uh, I just I I've seen the movie so many times that I practically considered all the characters family, which I often do with films. You know, you know, Doctor Brubaker is is always the voice of reason in a hospital of of a bunch of nutcases. Uh, Doctor Schaefer is betting every nurse he can find on every hospital bed he can find, and and. Uh, and Bach is about to. If you for the for the viewers and listeners who haven't seen the hospital, it's all about George C. Scott's character, who's the ultimate burnout case. I mean, this is a doctor who's contemplating suicide, and yet he's the most important doctor in this this uh, 
it's a Boston. Bo is it? Yeah, it's a Boston hospital, isn't it? Um, is it? No, it's New. Well, we shot it in Metropolitan Hospital. It was New York. I know it's New York. Okay, it's a New York hospital. But he is uh, he is he is a tremendous brain trying to keep this hospital together, which seems to be falling apart. Meanwhile, somebody's killing doctors, and we don't know who. It's I won't throw away any spoilers here. I worked with George C. Scott at the end of his career. He came over to Showtime. I was uh, a production publicist. He did the um, the latest version of Inherit the Wind. So he played. Wait, uh, was that was that Jack Lemon? Did he it do was that? Jack Lemon exactly. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget that George's trailer had a sign on the door, do not knock. So even if he was getting into his underwear, you could come into his trailer. Because I guess he got tired of people knocking every two minutes. It gave him a headache. So I do I do remember that. He was a terrific guy. I got to, I got to sit on a couch with him. Actually, previous to Inherit the Wind, he had done the remake of 12 Angry Men. He had played the Lee J. Cobb part. And I'm sitting on a couch with George C. Scott. It was a, it was a great experience. <laughs> I turned to him. I said, quoting from Pat, and I said, George, I noticed that there was a Bible next to your bed. Do you read it often? And he never, didn't break, break, break a line. He said, every goddamn day. <laughs> he, he was such a sport. So he was I, a terrific guy. Um, he, yeah, we got on great. He was so supportive, so great to me. He gave me... He gave me so much. I what he said to me when we met. He he was a little shy, and a little apologetic. He said, "Cause I mean, he had just broken up with his wife and fallen in love with Trish. So he he was going through some some of his own angst and trouble right then. And he said, you know what? Been a kind of a." In flux, I haven't had a chance to do any research. And Trish told me that uh, you spent a whole bunch of time in the hospitals and stuff. He said, uh, "Can you uh, can you f fill me in on some stuff that you found? You know that you observed." And I said, "How much time do we have?" He said, "As much time as you need." So for an hour, I'm in like what serving as a big dressing room which really is a it's just a, a big room they had two floors in metropolitan hospital that they shot in so i just gave him all my notes and i said i i think what i found is the key the key thing to me is chronic fatigue that's a doctor i i i followed them around and when they told me that they don't know when they're going to sleep, how this is before the unions like got in and said, Hey, we're endangering patients by employing you 24, 48 hours without a break. So I said, so they, they don't really, uh, you know, they don't stand. If you notice they're leaning against walls, leaning on things. They sometimes sit on patients' beds <laughs> Tired. Uh, the doctor told me he walks about between three and five miles a day just doing rounds. And I learned all sorts of little things like that from the doctors themselves that I that I observed and followed and spent time with. Now, you, you have two very good scenes 
How how long did you spend on the show? I mean, you're you 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 had the, you're principally in two scenes. I I feel like you're around more than that though. Well, I mean, you know, walking down the corridors and stuff a little bit because I have to. I'm responsible for all the residents. I'm the senior resident, so I'm their conduit to the chief of medicine, which is George. Right. So I'm responsible for everything going on on the floor that he has to answer for to the board. If something is, he comes to me for all that information. That's why I was so insecure. I, I didn't think I was, I had to learn as much as I could fast. So um, I was in New York, I think for almost two weeks. And, uh, but the scene was shot in one day. Um, and when we rehearsed it, uh, I, George said, why don't we, why don't we, we read through it. And, uh, and he said, my God, Bob, that's superb. Let's, let's get up and, you know, do it on our feet. And I said, George, if it's, can we do it leaning against the wall? Cause that's when I told him that these doctors, <laughs> it's chronic. And he said, Bob, you'll have a wall if I have to build it for you myself. That's what he said to me. So, so we I mean, did the scene, and one of the things, I was young, so I, I wouldn't have the guts or the balls to do this at this stage of my life. But I said to George, when we finished the scene, it had no button, it had no blow, it had no exit line. We've done a five-minute scene. We're talking about this guy. We did a mandatory walk-up. Now he's unconscious. We've knocked out one kidney, damaged another, and left him comatose. So, so George says, George's line was, uh, I, I, I said, the girl is the patient of the, she's an AOR nurse. She's willing to release him. What should I, you know, tell him? Uh, and the last line of the scene was, let him go. And then George exits. And I said, George, it doesn't make sense after all of this for that to be. I said, you need a, I said, I have an idea of what you could say there. He said, what, what, Bob? And I said, and I remembered Strasburg telling me, telling the, he said, never tell a director what you want to do. Show them. Because if you tell them, They'll see it through their eye, their own imagination. If you show them, they see it through yours. So I said, can I show you? Uh, he said, can I show you what I, he said, sure. I said, would you read my line, George? <laughs> he reads my line. Uh, what did I tell the girl, sir? She's an AOR nurse. She's willing to sign an AOR from whatever, uh, blah, blah, blah. And he reads my line and I, I do his line. I, I go, let him go before we kill him. And then with a little false exit, I did. And George roared. He loved it. And he, and he, he just loved it. And he said, this is great. He said, let me get Patty and Arthur in here and, uh, and let's show it to them. I said, okay. Well, when we did, Patty's reaction was, he actually just put his hand to his head and he went, I had something there. I don't know what happened to it. He said, that's great. Better than what I had. What a, what a great thing to hear from the, from the maestro himself. Well, Patty, 
Patty just, you know, I wouldn't have been in the film if Patty hadn't seen me in a play in San Francisco four months earlier and tried to find me. And we went out to lunch and, you know, anyway, Patty, that's my biggest, one of my biggest credits is Patty befriended me. And he is one of the, you know, giants of all time. I have to ask you about Diana Rigg, because if you're, for those of you who haven't seen the uh, the hospital, one of the key characters in the story is the daughter of this patient that they have, uh, they have practically killed. And Diana Rigg, uh, we, we had watched her on the TV series, The Avengers, and she was, you know, kind of a female James Bond. What do you remember about Diana? I mean, just the vision of her was quite stunning on film. What was she like in person? She was, uh, she was like a humble goddess. <laughs> she had a body that you know could end wars or start wars, uh, and and there was no way for her to hide it. In fact, she she proudly displayed it in a nude scene in a Broadway show that year on Broadway. She, I, I didn't see the show, but I heard that she had a little bit of nudity in it. So she was comfortable with physically. Uh, and, and one of the great scenes, I mean, his whole, that five minute monologue on impotency when he winds up basically tearing her clothes. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't tip no, I wasn't shushing you. My wife just walked into the room. I just wanted to shush her. <laughs> oh, I thought you looked at George and said, shh, don't give it away. No, 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 no. That's fine. Before anyway. we go, before we go today, I have to I have to throw up a, a photo here that I think will make you laugh. Um, here we go. Does this bring back <laughs> some memories? <laughs> oh yeah. That's one of the weirdest days of my life. Uh, I was uh, I was a sperm cell and everything you always wanted to know about sex. I was the straight man for Woody's jokes in that. And uh, that was one of the one of the strangest days of my life. Everybody is you walk into this set and everybody is dressed like we are in these, you know, flight suits with parachutes because, you know, you got to and and. And and I I wound up like winding up staging that a little bit because Woody didn't know when we went through it, we said, let's go through it. And so we read the lines, the two of us. And he said, don't worry about that. Say whatever you want. I said, this is funny stuff. <laughs> he said, no, it's not that good. You can say whatever you want. And so we went through it and he said, so what do you think? And I said, well, we're just kind of like standing here and not not covering the jokes with anything. So what do you mean? I said, well, we have no behavior. We're just standing here. And uh, he said, yeah, I know. What do you think we should be doing? <laughs> so I said, well, Woody, I don't know how you prepared for this, but you know, I was watching a lot of Dane Clark war movies trying to figure out how to play a sperm cell ready to die in battle <laughs> um, you know we jump at it we have parachutes so i said um i said why don't we like check each other's shoots out you know like guys in war before they jump you know so i covered it with a lot of 
behavior that I saw in these movies. And then there was the second scene uh, where I said, well, I saw the wire above us on the set. They really did like a B-29 bomber. That's what we were all in. And I said, they, they have to hook each other up, I recall, in these movies, so that when they jump, the chute automatically opens because it's attached by, to the I plane. Called a, I think it's called a static line. There you go. And so I said, so why don't... Uh, why don't we do some stuff with that? And I, I said, I'll hook myself up while we do the first part of the scene. Then I'll, I'll try to hook you up and don't let me get it out of your hand. And we can struggle over that while we do the. He said, okay. So that, that's how we did, did the scenes. But it just, it's, I think about it now and I wouldn't have the guts. I just wouldn't, wouldn't have the guts to say this and do this, I don't think, with these icons of, of film. But there, I, that's I, I what I did. I looked back on it and I said, yeah, I really had confidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, working with Woody must have been a, a treat for you. I'm sure you've been a big fan of his for many years. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I also did a two-character play with Louise Lasser, who had just gotten divorced from him, but they were still friends. So he came and saw the play, and and I met him briefly then, yeah. And so he said to you, I need you to play a sperm? No, it was actually his manager, Charlie Jaffe. Oh. Actually, coming out of a screening of the hospital is when Charlie approached me. Oh, you were going to tell me, by the way, that you were surprised that the reviews of the hospital were mixed. Uh, yeah. I thought it was, like, pretty terrific. And uh, they were mixed reviews. It didn't do well initially, financially, or even though it won an Oscar for Best Screenplay. You know, I wonder sometimes, you know, there's a lot of talk about movies that mix genre. And, you know, um, The Hospital is a black comedy, but it's also a very kind of a almost... Uh, a uh, forensic look at life in a big city hospital. The hospital's running, but at the same time, you have this murder mystery, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. I don't know what audience expected, but in watching this, I've always found that Patty's dialogue is so on target that it, it keeps you riveted. It reminds me of the way I used to feel about Rod Serling, when Rod Serling did those early Twilight Zone episodes, because he, like Shaevsky, Serling was a master at dialogue. And he loved language. Loved language. And he was kind of a bit of a dying breed. I, I, I actually spent three years writing the encyclopedia of the Twilight Zone. It was published about five years ago. And I really got deeply into Serling. And I watched all 156 episodes in a row and I just came away, and he had written 92 of them. So you got a real feeling for his dialogue. And Shaevsky was like that as well. Just just the, the dialogue just just really works. And um, I'm, I'm just such a big fan of the movie. You know, uh, Robert, I, I wanted to spend some time talking about All the President's Men, and I wanted to spend some time talking about um, uh, Capricorn One. I had Nick Meyer on the show a few months ago talking about Capricorn. And I want to I want to feel like I, I'm uh, 
I'd like to I'd like to recall you to the courtroom at some future date to talk a little bit more. Yeah, we can easily do another hour on 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 all the presidents, man. At least an hour. It was absolutely. It, it's and, one of the jobs that you take to the grave. An actor can count on one hand, usually. And we know. have another kind of a mild connection because um, uh, you, of course, spent years on Lou Grant. Uh, you were nominated three times for Emmys, and my fir, uh, my wife's cousin married Lou, uh, Ed Asner's son recently, or within the last few years. Uh, Matthew yeah. Asner is is now related to me through marriage. Uh, she's lovely too. I, I I I've met her once. Nava Nava Pasquich, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, lovely lady. Very lovely lady. Yeah. Uh, so and we got to talk yes. about that, and 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 so and then uh, you played Oppenheimer. You know, in a year of Oppenheimer, you had done it before. Oh man, that was so! I couldn't believe they asked me to do it and wanted me to do it. I I was like stunned. Um, well, we'll talk. We'll talk about that next time. Uh, everyone, we have been watching and listening to the wonderful Robert Walden, what I call a salt of the earth actor. And certainly uh, a wonderful presence in so many great shows. And and Robert, thank you again for your yeoman work in the hospital and your stories. It's just so, so good to hear those stories. And uh, everyone, I'm Steve Rubin, your host of Saturday Night at the Movies. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. And thank you so much, Robert. It was a pleasure, Steve. Thanks for we'll, loving the movie. Thank you. And we'll talk. We'll talk soon. OK, bye bye.